Support comes from our lead sponsor of TED Radio Hour, Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Disclosures at RaymondJames.com. Hey, it's Guy here, and this episode is all about Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of human needs. Did you know that up until the 1950s, psychologists mostly focused on what was wrong with people? And then came Maslow. Join us as we go up Maslow's pyramid from food and sleep all the way to self-actualization. This episode originally aired in April of 2015. Enjoy. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Uh, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? <laughs> I've never known that... Delivered at TED conferences around the world. It's the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. I'm Guy Raz. You'd never know it from just walking around. But in a simple mid-century building on the campus of Brandeis University near Boston, there's an office where some of the most revolutionary ideas in psychology were first developed. An office. It's just a room. Yep. No plaque outside. Yeah, we really should have a plaque outside that office, shouldn't we? (laughs) Margie Lockman, professor of psychology at Brandeis University, gave a tour of the office. The same halls that he would have walked down. That um, once belonged to when he was here. Abraham Maslow. Hi. Were you here when Abraham Maslow I was knew here? Abe Maslow quite okay, well. so he knew Abe Maslow. <laughs> so there are a few people around. He Maslow worked here until a year before his death in 1970. Know that the desk was located here. But it was about 20 years before that. And he looked out this window. In the 1950s, and, uh, when his ideas really began to change the field of psychology. Before that, psychology focused on what's wrong with the person. Uh, They looked at people who were neurotic, people who had psychological disorders. Psychology was really the study of, of problems and mental illness. In other words, before Maslow, psychologists were more interested in why people were the way they were rather than how they could change, even improve. I don't think there's anything Pollyanna about saying, yes, improvement is possible. You have to work hard at it. Here's the way to do it. And so instead of looking at what was wrong with his patients... Maslow was really one of the first to think about what's right with the person. There is a possibility of improvement. It it has to be probabilistic. This audio of Maslow was recorded during a retreat in the mid-1960s where he lectured on self-improvement. Now, decades earlier, people looking for this kind of help might have been called patients who were sick. But to Maslow... They were called clients. There was much more of a face-to-face relationship between the therapist and the client that was a natural human relationship of trying to work together to understand problems or issues that might uh, occur. That was really revolutionary at the time, believe it or not. And Maslow didn't just come up with this idea that 
perfectly functioning people could nonetheless strive to be better. Persons can be improved. As you might remember from Psych 101, it's not guaranteed. he actually designed a framework to help understand how. There are some people who are more difficult than others. That framework well is known as Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's an idea that to this day shapes modern psychology. And on the show today, we'll explore Maslow's five human needs in order of importance, the things he said humans need to survive and then to thrive. And so this notion of a hierarchy, you start at the bottom and you build up. Like a pyramid. And at the base, the most fundamental human needs... The basic survival needs... Shelter, food, and, as we'll hear later, sleep. We have not taken sleep seriously since the 20th century. Second on the pyramid, security. Without security, you're not going to build a society. From there, Maslow believed you could move up to... Higher-order, growth-oriented needs that other people really hadn't talked about before. Love and belonging. The reality for primates is you can't even survive without belonging to a group. Then comes esteem. To be in a healthy relationship, to like yourself, it just takes work. And finally, something Maslow called self-actualization. Really focusing on growth and finding meaning in life and purpose in life. The world is so full of things you can do <laughs> that you can try to do better. And if you can do that, it doesn't matter what you're doing. Maslow believed there was something fundamentally human about these needs and about our desire to be better and more fulfilled. Yeah, I mean, I think most of the work at the time had been <laughs> had actually been done with animals. Animal work had been done looking at things like hunger and thirst and these basic needs. And he tried to apply this to humans and found that that wasn't all there was. He, it wasn't just people were trying to survive. They were trying to do something beyond survival. And they had this basic, seemed like a basic motivation to improve and to reach their greatest potential. We'll hear more from Margie Lockman later on. And as she mentioned, the first and most fundamental needs in Maslow's hierarchy were physiological needs food, water, shelter, and a need that most of us just don't treat like one. Sleep. Sleep has to be um, absolutely at the top of that hierarchy in a sense. This is Russell Foster. He's a circadian neuroscientist at Oxford University where he studies sleep. And in his research, he's discovered that most people don't take it as seriously as they should. I think it's the apparent you know, d dilemma that we, we don't seem to be doing anything. We seem to be just essentially wasting our time while we're asleep. So when you celebrate your 60th wedding anniversary, it's, it's worth reflecting that of those 60 years, 21 and a half were probably asleep. Um, oh, therefore, wow. it's perhaps only uh, reasonable to celebrate 38 and a half years. Um, but, but the key thing is that the, the quality of that 21 and a half years uh, spent asleep will to some extent dictate the quality of those years awake with your partner. Of course, why exactly sleep is so important and what's going on when we do it is still largely a mystery to scientists like Russell. But there are a lot of theories out there, and Russell Foster described three of them in his TED Talk. 
The first is sort of the restoration idea, and it's somewhat intuitive. Essentially, all the stuff we've burnt up during the day, we restore, we replace, we rebuild during the night. And indeed, as an explanation, it goes back to Aristotle. So that's, what, 2,300 years ago. It's fashionable at the moment because what's been shown is that within the brain, a whole raft of genes have been shown to be turned on only during sleep. And those genes are associated with restoration and metabolic pathways. So there's good evidence for the whole restoration hypothesis. What about energy conservation? Um, you essentially sleep to save calories. When you do the sums, though, it doesn't really pan out. The energy saving of sleeping is about 110 calories a night. Now, that's the equivalent of a hot dog bun. So I'm less convinced by the, by the energy conservation idea. But the third idea I'm quite attracted to, which is brain processing and memory consolidation. What we know is that if after you've tried to learn a task and you sleep-deprive individuals, the ability to learn that task is smashed. It's, it's really hugely uh, attenuated. So sleep and memory consolidation is also very important. However, it's not just the laying down of memory and recalling it. What's turned out to be really exciting is that our ability to come up with novel solutions to complex problems is hugely enhanced by a night of sleep. In fact, it's been estimated to give us a threefold advantage. Sleeping at night um, enhances our creativity. And what seems to be going on is that in the brain, those neural connections that are important, those synaptic connections that are important, are linked and strengthened, while those that are less important tend to sort of fade away and be less important. And so when we sleep, Parts of us are shutting down, but, but actually, big parts of our, our, our system never sleep, never shut down. They're constantly working, right? No, no. And in fact, that's very important because one of the ways we sort of thought about it is that we've got all these jigsaw pieces flowing in during the day. The brain is essentially having to deal with billions of bits of information, and we haven't had time to sort of put it in into the rest of the jigsaw puzzle. But at night, you've got that time to try and associate those bits of the jigsaw puzzle, those new pieces of the puzzle, in with what you've experienced previously and, and what you might anticipate um, happening in the future. So all life on Earth has an innate sense of time. In mammals, the cue, of course, is light. It's what determines our circadian rhythms. And researchers like Russell are starting to better understand the neurological and physiological impact of what happens when we ignore those rhythms and don't get enough sleep, which accounts for most of us. And that's across the, the age spectrum, from teenagers, stressed adults, indeed the retired population. And not getting enough makes you less alert, more irritable, prone to illness. And if you're sleep-deprived... You're releasing one of the hunger hormones called ghrelin, and that enormously increases your appetite for carbohydrates, and particularly sugars. And so Lack of sleep hurts your memory, it affects your judgment, but perhaps most importantly... Lack of sleep hurts your body's ability to defend itself. So, for example, even uh, one night of no sleep can reduce elements of your immune system by about 24-25%. And Russell says in lab experiments, when mice are sleep-deprived, they don't die of exhaustion. They actually die from infections. And one of the problems of, of not having enough sleep is that we're very, very poorly able to judge how tired we are. And even if we are sleep-deprived by one or two hours, we sort of get by. But we've all experienced, after that really fantastic holiday, where we feel like a different person, yeah. and we forget so quickly. Once you get back to work and you are sleep-deprived again, uh, you forget that glorious feeling of what a good night of sleep can do to you. 
So most of us, of course, ask the question, what do you do? Make your bedroom a haven for sleep. The first critical thing is make it as dark as you possibly can and also make it slightly cool. Okay, so you've probably heard this advice before. Sleep in a cool, dark bedroom, no caffeine late in the day, no screens before bedtime, get on a regular schedule. But so many of us, even though we'll spend 36% of our lives asleep, we just don't do these things. We don't treat sleep as a need on par with food or water or shelter. Yes, yes, it is that important. Um, and I suppose if you think about it, you know, it's 36% of our biology, and if we don't do it, then it, you know, that, that amount of time is telling us that sleep, of course, is incredibly important. We wouldn't do it unless it was essential. Uh, evolution doesn't work like that. It, 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 it essentially uh, hones and fine-tunes our biology to maximize efficiency. And the fact that we sleep so long indicates that this is a massively important part of our, our overall biology, and we must not uh, ignore it. And if we do, it's at our own peril. Yeah, but I mean, but what explains? I mean, why, why do we ignore it? I think it's um, in the 20th century in particular, where we've relegated sleep as this sort of illness that requires a cure. So many people during the 80s, 90s, and, you know, even very recently have sort of boasted about, oh, I did an all-nighter. You know, I, I, I haven't slept or I only slept one or two hours. But in the pre-industrial era, poets uh, and society in general embraced sleep. Um, Shakespeare is absolutely littered with, with quotes about sleep, the, the honey-heavy dew of slumber. You know, sleep, sleep, nature's soft nurse. Why hast thou forsaken me? Uh, and, and all of this sort of intuitive uh, love of sleep has been lost. And science, ironically, uh, b- because it's uncovering the importance of sleep, is, is, is restoring sleep in our, in our priorities. It's something that we can't marginalise, but something we must embrace once again. Russell Foster's entire talk can be found at ted.npr.org. More ideas about Maslow's hierarchy of human needs in just a moment. I'm Guy Raz, and this is the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Support comes from our lead sponsor of TED Radio Hour, Raymond James, a financial firm as unique as the people it serves. Raymond James financial advisors consider the unique lives and goals of each client to create full-picture plans that go beyond retirement savings and managing risk. They provide tailored solutions for complex needs through wealth management, banking, and capital markets services. Raymond James and Associates, Inc., member New York Stock Exchange, SIPC. This message comes from NPR sponsor, American Express. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, we're exploring ideas about Maslow's hierarchy of human needs. And ranked at number two, security, the second step on the pyramid. There's no other place for it to come. Security is basic. Without security, worrying about anything else doesn't matter. This is Bruce Schneier. Schneier rides with frequent flyer. I'm a security technologist. I write, I speak, I have a company, I do research. And Bruce thinks about security in a much bigger way than just through the prism of technology. He thinks about the psychology of security and fear. If you can't trust 
that hundred unrelated people could get together in a room and not kill each other. I mean, you're not going to build a society. But we do that all the time. Right. Right? We watch a movie. We watch a sporting event. We have dinner. That's because we generally feel secure in our society and can act that way. Security is immediate. Security is personal. Security is survival. And until that need is met, other things are are less important. But when it comes to security, Bruce says we humans, we have a problem. Because in the modern world, we are not good at estimating just how secure we should feel. Here's how Bruce explained it from the TED stage. So security is two different things, right? It's a feeling and it's a reality. And they're different. You could feel secure even if you're not, and you can be secure even if you don't feel it. And really we have two separate concepts mapped onto the same word. So if you look at security from economic terms, it's a trade-off. Every time you get some security, you're always trading off something. And whether this is a personal decision, whether you're going to install a burglar alarm in your home, or a national decision, whether you're going to invade some foreign country, you're going to trade off something, uh, either money or time, convenience, capabilities, maybe fundamental liberties. So you'd think that us, as a successful species on the planet, right, you, me, everybody, would be really good at making these trade-offs. Yet it seems again and again that we're hopelessly bad at it. Right? And I think that's a fundamentally interesting question. I'll, I'll give you the short answer. The answer is we respond to the feeling of security and not the reality. We estimate the probability of something by how easy it is to bring instances of it to mind. So you can imagine how that works. If you hear a lot about tiger attacks, there must be a lot of tigers around. You don't hear about lion attacks, there aren't a lot of lions around. This works until you invent newspapers. Because what newspapers do is they repeat again and again rare risks. And I tell people, if it's in the news, don't worry about it. Because by definition, news is something that almost never happens. Right? When something is so common, it's no longer news. Right? Car crashes, domestic violence, those are the risks you worry about. Okay, you're talking about, about rationality, responding to risks in a reasonable way. I mean, I get that. But, but like once I had children, right, there was this feeling that would come over me. It still does pretty much every day, which is, are they okay? I mean, is everything okay? And, and I get that that's irrational. It is. And, and, and they are always okay. It's kind of neat. <laughs> but, but the thing is, is that if something happened, it's, it's, I think it's like the fear of the possibility of something possibly happening that could possibly go wrong that could be... It, it, it's worst case thinking. Yeah. I mean, worst case thinking is, I think, incredibly dangerous, incredibly damaging. But, you know, we are creative people. You know, when you ask us the worst case, we can come up with all kinds of great yes. stories. And, you know, all the things we watch, the movies, the TV shows, they tend to be about worst case stuff. You know, we sort of like watching other people's disasters. I mean, we would want it to become okay in the end, but, you know, we don't tend to watch people's normal days where nothing happens. We watch the extremes, and then, you know, we think extremes are more normal. But there are people who spend a good part of their lives in these extreme, insecure situations, places like war zones or, you know, places where people are competing for resources, and that becomes normal to them. So, I mean, can people survive and thrive 
in a situation that is fundamentally insecure? People can thrive to the extent they can, but you will generally find smaller communities. You'll find shorter range plans. You'll find less complex systems of everything because that's all you can do. You're not going to worry about whether you're happy or not if you're constantly under the threat of attack. That until you're secure, happiness or not isn't really relevant to you. So let me complicate things, right? I have feeling and reality. I want to add a third element. I want to add model, right? So feeling is based on our intuition. Model is based on reason. In a modern and complex world, you need models to understand a lot of the risks we face. You know, there's no feeling about germs. You need a model to understand them. Uh, models can come from the media, from our elected officials. Think of, uh, of models of terrorism, uh, child kidnapping, uh, airline safety. Right? So models can change. Right? Models are not static. An example, a great example is the risk of smoking. In the history of the past 50 years, the smoking risk shows how a model changes. It also shows how an industry fights against a model it doesn't like. I mean, really, though, information seems like our best hope. We have the ability, as thinking human beings, to overcome our fears. But, but this goes back to, uh, as you said in your TED Talk, feeling secure rather than being secure. And, and isn't feeling secure, isn't it just as important? It's, it is just as important. And this is where our brains kick in, that we are smart enough as a species to recognize that we can get over some of our primal urges. But the goal isn't to become unfeeling Vulcans. So the, the goal is to integrate our feeling and reality. Bruce Schneier has written about this in a book called Data and Goliath. You can see his whole talk at TED.com. Okay, so we've taken care of the basic set of needs, physiological, security, and then comes what Abraham Maslow called the higher order needs, things like love and belonging. Well, there are different kinds of love. Obviously, one can have the love of one's spouse, one's friends, one's children in this society. But the bonds of community, of tribe, are a very, very particular thing. This is the journalist Sebastian Younger. And in modern American society, um, the main unit is the family. And that's great. But we evolved as a species to live in groups of 30, 40, 50 people in a very hostile environment, completely interreliant on one another. And so in the modern world, he says, the closest you can get to that kind of group? That's a platoon in combat. Uh, I'd like to take you up over there, so Major's trying to give you the warts over the world here. This is audio from a documentary Sebastian shot back in 2007 in Afghanistan. It's called Restrepo. This is the southern Korngal. This is, uh, I guess you could call it, this is the war zone. And this is where it's all happening. Sebastian and his friend Tim Hetherington documented the lives of American soldiers at a remote outpost in the northeastern part of the country. They're absorbing almost 20% of all the combat in Afghanistan. It was one of the most dangerous places in the entire country. That little area was just very, very intense. And what Sebastian found was that 
the bond, the sense of belonging among the men stationed there was more powerful than anything they'd experienced in civilian life. Sebastian described his time there on the TED stage. The guys were up there for a month at a time. They fought, they worked, they slept. There was no internet. There was no phone. There was no communication with the outside world. There was nothing up there that young men typically like. No cars, no girls, no television, nothing. Except combat. Combat they did learn to like. To understand that, let's think about what happens in your brain when you're in combat. Time slows down, you get this weird tunnel vision. It's almost a slightly altered state of mind. Big firefight, big. And packing up rounds. What's happening in your brain is you're getting an enormous amount of adrenaline pumped through your system. That was fun though, man, that was fun. You You can't get a better high. It's like crack, you know? Once you've been shot at, you really can't come down. There's nothing, you can't top that. Are you gonna go back to the civilian world then? I have no idea. Sebastian heard this from a lot of soldiers, that combat was addictive. And so when many of them got home, they started to miss it. They started to miss the feeling of being there. I was particularly close to a guy named Brendan O'Byrne. I'm still very good friends with him. He came back to the States. He got out of the Army. Uh, I had a dinner party one night. I invited him. <clears throat> and he, was, he started talking with a woman, uh, one of my friends. And she, she knew how bad it had been out there. And she said, Brendan, uh, is there anything at all that you miss about being out in Afghanistan, about the war? <clears throat> and he thought about it for quite a long time. He finally said, ma'am, I miss almost all of it. And he's one of the most traumatized people I've seen from that war. Ma'am, I miss almost all of it. What is he talking about? So it wasn't just Brendan, it was a really common sentiment. Um, and I think what, they, what they're talking about, I mean, they're not psychopaths, they don't miss killing people, they don't miss almost getting killed, getting injured themselves, losing their friends. What they miss is brotherhood. They miss being part of a very tightly bonded group where pretty much everyone in that group is willing to risk or even sacrifice their life for the safety, for the welfare of everyone else. Did you meet young men at Restrepo who who didn't have that sense of belonging in their home lives, and their personal lives, or didn't grow up with it and seemed to be searching for that? I mean, maybe they, they weren't searching for it consciously, but, but you kind of could detect that? You know, I would say that someone who had a very tightly bonded home life would recognize a similar feeling once he's in a platoon. And I think the desire for inclusion is so powerful and hardwired into our brains so permanently that even if you didn't have that kind of inclusion at home, once you experience it for the first time, it feels powerful and familiar and the thing that you want above everything else. Now, brotherhood's different from friendship. It's a mutual agreement in a group that you will put the welfare of the group, you will put the safety of everyone in the group above your own. In effect, you're saying, I love these other people more than I love myself. Brennan was a team leader in command of three men, and the worst thing that happened to him in Afghanistan was one of his men was hit in the head with a bullet in the helmet knocked him over, 
They thought he was dead. He was in the middle of a huge firefight. No one could deal with it. And a minute later, Kyle Steiner sat back up from the dead, as it were, because he'd come, he'd come back to consciousness. The bullet had just knocked him out. It glanced off the helmet. As he was sort of half conscious, he remembers people saying, Steiner's been hit in the head. Steiner's dead. And he was thinking, I'm not dead. And he sat up. And Brendan realized after that that he could not protect his men. And that was the only time he cried in Afghanistan was realizing that. That's brotherhood. This is something that's, that's really hard for, you know, for most people who haven't experienced this to understand. I think the soldiers themselves mostly don't even understand mm-hmm. it. I, I think it's actually quite puzzling. The analogy, you know, I sort of make with people is for those of you who've been divorced, sometimes people look back with real nostalgia on the good times of a marriage that had to end. Combat's a little bit the same way. It's like, my God, it was the worst thing that ever happened. But still, I, I kind of miss that. And, you know, soldiers are very puzzled by it. And, of course, their spouses are puzzled by it. I mean, they come back from combat and they want to go back. And it's very hurtful and, and painful to the spouses. Because there they felt something that they can't quite explain. Yes. I mean, we live in a post-industrial modern society where we don't function in large groups. And as a species, we're wired to function that way. And when there's a calamity, when 9-11 happens, when a hurricane hits New York City, for a little while, neighborhood by neighborhood, people are extremely collaborative and they really like it. And then they think a little bit nostalgically about those difficult days. I think what you're seeing is a longingness not for hardship and danger and pain and loss, but a longing for connection. Journalist Sebastian Younger. His documentary, Restrepo, was nominated for an Academy Award. You can see his entire talk at ted.npr.org. On the show today, Maslow and his hierarchy of human needs. And according to that hierarchy, while a sense of love and belonging is important for humans to thrive, to get to the next step means looking inward. Because no matter how brilliant other people think you are, or how many things that you might achieve, if you don't think you're valuable, if you don't like yourself, all of that is worthless. This is Caroline Casey, and her story really shows the full spectrum of esteem, which happens to be the fourth level and close to the top of the pyramid in Maslow's hierarchy. I had um, serious confidence issues at certain times of my childhood. I was a bit awkward, I think, for a certain time of my life. And I bumped into lots of things and I was klutzy and I wasn't very good at like hitting a hockey ball or a tennis ball or anything like that. All that's pretty normal for a kid. So Caroline's dad worked on helping her overcome those feelings. My dad had us going up and down mountains. I I learned how to sail. Um, I loved cars. I was far more a tomboy than I was a girly girl. And by the time she was 17, she'd grown more confident. Right at the same time, she found out something about herself that changed the rest of her life. Here's Caroline on the TED stage. I wanted to race cars, and I wanted to be a cowgirl, and I wanted to be Mowgli from The Jungle Book, because they were all about being free. The wind in your hair, just to be free. And on my 17th birthday, my parents, knowing how much I love speed, gave me one driving lesson. And on my 17th birthday, I accompanied my little sister in complete innocence, as I always had all my life, my visually impaired sister, to go to see an eye specialist, 
because big sisters are always supposed to support their little sisters. And my little sister wants to be a pilot, God help her. So I used to get my eyes tested just for fun. And on my 17th birthday, after my fake eye exam, the eye specialist just noticed it happened to me on my birthday. And he said, so what are you going to do to celebrate? And I took that driving lesson and I said, I'm going to learn how to drive. And then there was a silence. One of those awful silences when you know something's wrong. And he turned to my mother and he said, you haven't told her yet. What they didn't tell Caroline was that her vision was severely impaired and always had been. What some doctors classify as legally blind. And Caroline never realized that the way she sees, basically everything beyond two feet is a blur. She never realized that that was abnormal. See this hand? Beyond this hand is a world of Vaseline. Every man in this room is George Clooney. (laughs) And every woman, you are so beautiful. And when I want to look beautiful, I step three feet away from the mirror and I don't have to see these lines etched in my face from all the squinting I've done all my life from all the dark lights. So the question is, how did Caroline not know her vision was that bad for so long? That's coming up in a moment. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, we're climbing up Maslow's hierarchy of human needs. Stay with us. You're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. This message comes from Apple Pay. Everyone knows that credit card numbers can be stolen. But you know what's harder to steal? Your face. With Apple Pay, your purchases are authenticated by you thanks to Face ID, making your smile your signature. Just double-click, smile, and tap. With each tap, your card number and your purchases stay secured. Pay the Apple way with your compatible device anywhere contactless payment is accepted. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. With the year halfway over, therapy can help you take stock of your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. If you're thinking about trying therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Visit BetterHelp.com NPR today to get 10% off your first month. This message comes from NPR sponsor VCU Massey Comprehensive Cancer Center, who, as an NCI-designated comprehensive cancer center in the country's top 4%, is unconditionally committed to keeping loved ones in their lives. MasseyCancerCenter.org slash comprehensive. Hey, Asma, I think it's time for a big change. All right, what does that mean? I think it's time to make the NPR Politics Podcast a daily podcast. Well, we do have more than ample news. You and I are on the campaign trail, it seems like, nonstop. And now there's an impeachment inquiry into President Trump. So starting this week, the NPR Politics Podcast will be in your feed every weekday to keep you up to date ahead of the 2020 election. So subscribe wherever you get your podcast, the NPR Politics Podcast, now five days a week. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, we're exploring ideas about Maslow's hierarchy of human needs, the five levels of needs that allow us to feel fulfilled. On that list, number four, esteem. 
And before the break, we were hearing from Caroline Casey. Her entire self-image was shattered on her 17th birthday when she discovered something she didn't know, that from birth, she'd been legally blind. I had a pair of glasses, and loads of kids had glasses. So I kind of just thought anybody who wore glasses would have the same things as me, and I, I didn't think that I was different. How is it possible that, that you didn't know, that you didn't know that your, your vision was, was severely limited? Well, the reason, very simply, is that my parents made a very definitive decision that they didn't want me to have any less a chance in life than any other child and did not disclose to me that I had any problems with my vision. So when I found out, you know, at 17, it was really shocking and I didn't really believe the doctor. So it's a combination of total denial and and lack of acceptance. And then the other part of me, which really believed, well, look, if I've got this far, then you might be wrong and I might be right. I can see and I will see. And with the same dogged determination that my father had bred into me since I was such a child, he taught me how to sail, knowing I could never see where I was going. I could never see the shore, and I couldn't see the sail, and I couldn't see the destination. And for the next 11 years, I swore nobody would ever find out that I couldn't see because I didn't want to be a failure, and I didn't want to be weak, and I believed I could do it. So I rammed through life as only a Casey can do. And I was an archaeologist, and then I broke things. And then I managed a restaurant, and then I slipped in things. And then I was a masseuse, and then I was a landscape gardener, and then I went to business school, and and then I went in, and I got a global consulting job with Accenture, and they they didn't even know. And it's extraordinary how far belief can take you. I mean, so at that time, when when you were like outwardly perceived as as confident and, and outgoing... I mean, inwardly, were you feeling like like you had high self-esteem? Um, no, Guy, I didn't. I call it the duck. It's being a duck. And if you ever watch a duck on water, they look beautiful and calm on the outside. But you see their legs paddling madly underneath the surface just to keep afloat. In those years from 17 through to 28, though I appeared strong on the outside, the work and the effort to do that was exhausting. I wasn't as confident and my esteem was not good at all. And the more she thought about her limits, the more it affected her self-esteem and the harder it got to hold on to it. And so by the time Caroline was 28, working as a consultant, she'd kind of reached a breaking point. In 1999, Two and a half years into that job, I found myself in front of a HR manager saying something I never imagined that I would say. I was 28 years old. I had built a persona all around what I could and couldn't do. And I simply said, I'm sorry, I can't see, and I need help. And so after admitting I couldn't see to HR, they sent me off to an eye specialist. And that eye specialist, he didn't bother testing my eyes. God, no. It was therapy. And he asked me several questions, of which many were, why? Why are you fighting so hard not to be yourself? And I left that doctor's office and I was so angry. Like, you have no idea and how upset and how terrified because I knew the game was up. And I went home and I put my trainers on and I I went for a run along a beach, which is not probably the most sensible thing that somebody who's bad vision and very upset should have done. (laughs) And I thought... 
what was it going to do? Like, who was it going to be? Was I going to have to leave my job? I was just really scared. And um, I kept replaying over the conversation that myself and the doctor had. Was I happy? Was I the person I really wanted to be? And what did I want to be when I was little? And yeah, okay, so I couldn't race cars and motorbikes, but, uh, you know, there was one dream I could do. And uh, I decided on that day, I am going to go across India on an elephant and I'm going to be Mowgli. And I had no idea how I was going to be an elephant handler, from global management consultant to elephant handler. I had no idea how. I had no idea how you hire an elephant, get an elephant. I didn't speak Hindi. I've never been to India. I had no clue. But I knew I would. Because when you make a decision at the right time in the right place, God, that universe makes it happen for you. Nine months later after that day, I had the only blind date in my life with a seven and a half foot elephant called Kanchi. Caroline and her elephant, Kanji, would eventually go on a 620-mile trek across India. And after nearly a decade of feeling trapped by her physical limitations... I found out really who I was on that trip. I found out that being this crazy adventure girl, being this outlier, was a good thing. And I, I had a renewed sense of energy and self when I came off that elephant. And I knew my life would never be the same. And it, and it never has been since. You know, we're talking about uh, Maslow's hierarchy of, of human needs on the show today. And I think it's easy for us to think of them as, as immutable, right? You know, you hit physiological needs, and then you go up the next rung to security, and then you take the next box, which is love and belonging, and the next one, and the next one. But they're not fixed, like, right? Like, esteem comes and goes. Like, there's still times where you must feel incredible self-esteem and confidence and self-respect. And then there are moments where, where I think we all kind of we lose it and then we regain it and we lose it. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? No, I think that's so valid because I find with life that I sometimes go three steps up and 17 steps yeah. back. <laughs> and I'm like, I can't believe I'm here again. I can't believe that I have screwed up and forgotten the lessons I learned and I'm being so hard on myself. And I thought there was a Eureka. I thought this elephant trip would solve all my problems. I thought that if, well, after I did that, the journey to self was going to be a full stop. <laughs> it's not. To have self-esteem, to, to be in a healthy relationship, to like yourself, it just takes work. And there is no moment or island where you will find pure bliss. You might find it for a moment, but unfortunately the weather changes. Caroline Casey now runs a foundation she named after that elephant. It's called Kanchi, and it works to change mindsets around the issue of disability. You can see her entire talk at ted.npr.org. So once you make it beyond the basic needs, physiological needs, security needs, beyond the needs of self-esteem and love and belonging, what could possibly be left? Now, the idea is this. What are the motivations of uh, people who are beyond needs of the ordinary style because they're already satisfied? Now, um, what moves them? In 1966, at the time of this recording, Abraham Maslow described what was then a new idea to psychology, the final stage of his hierarchy of needs. He called it self-actualization. 
Well, self-actualizing is his highest level of the hierarchy in the sense of people who are really focusing on growth and finding meaning in life and purpose in life. This is Margie Lachman. We met her earlier. She's a professor at Brandeis, as was Abraham Maslow. People like Eleanor Roosevelt and Abraham Lincoln were some of the examples that he gave for people who were self-actualizing. One of the stories I like to tell my students uh, is that when he was here at Brandeis, he interviewed uh, about 3,000 students searching for self-actualizing students, and he was very disappointed. He didn't find one that would qualify as being self-actualizing. So when I tell my students that, I quickly say to them, but don't worry, as you age and have more experiences uh, and get to learn more about yourself, then you can really enter this realm of growth. Abraham Maslow died suddenly of a heart attack in 1970. He was just 62. But if he had lived long enough to continue researching self-actualization, it might have looked a lot like the work of another famous psychologist. How should I, what should I call you? Well, uh, With kind of a difficult name. Mihai is fine. Uh, uh, Mike is acceptable oh, too, sure. Oh, great. Okay. Because um, that's what it means. Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, or Mike, was born in a part of Italy that's now Croatia. He's 82. And when Mihai was a young psychologist studying in America in the 1950s, Abraham Maslow's ideas were just beginning to take hold. Every once in a while he would write a couple of pages in an obscure journal and it would be like a breath of fresh air and they found, wow, yeah, that's why I want to be a psychologist in the first place. And um, the kind of pyramid of needs and... Um, like and, Maslow uh, before him, Mihai was drawn to the question of self-actualization and what we need to be truly happy. So after years of research, he came up with an answer, and one that made him famous in the world of psychology and human behavior. Here's Mihai's TED Talk. About 30% of the people surveyed in the United States since 1956 say that their life is very happy. And that hasn't changed at all, whereas the personal income has more than doubled, almost tripled in that period. But you find after a certain basic point, increases in material well-being don't seem to affect how happy people are. So my research has been focused more on where in everyday life do we feel really happy? And to start those studies about 40 years ago, I began to look at uh, creative people, first artists and scientists and so forth, trying to understand what made them uh, feel that it was worth doing things for which many of them didn't expect either fame or fortune, but which made their life meaningful and worth uh, doing. Mihai, in other words, was researching people who didn't make a lot of money, but who had nonetheless built meaningful, happy lives. And he concluded that people like this fit into a kind of pattern when it came to what they did. So if it was the piano, for instance... At first you enjoy the simplest things that you're doing. You you are proud of being able to do the scales in music, let's say, or to play a very simple tune. But But once you master the basics, you say, okay, how can I take the next step? 
the next step, maybe you've heard this, is you practice a lot. Eventually, after, you know, about 10,000 hours of practice, um, you can play whatever you want. Uh, And once you practice enough, eventually you can achieve a level of mastery in what you do that allows you to enter a special state of mind when you do it. Mihai studied all kinds of composers, including Oscar Peterson, who wrote this piece of music that you've been hearing. And all those composers describe the experience of losing themselves in their music, in their work, in a way that made them truly happy. One of the composers who Mihai described in his TED Talk called it a state of ecstasy. Now, he says also that this is so intense an experience that it feels almost as if it didn't exist. And that sounds like kind of a romantic exaggeration, but actually our nervous system is incapable of processing more than about 110 bits of information per second. And in order to hear me and understand what I'm saying, you need to process about 60 bits per second. That's why you can't understand more than two people talking to you. Well, when you are really involved in this completely engaging process of creating something new, as this man does, he doesn't have enough attention left over to monitor how his body feels or his problems at home. He can't feel even that he's hungry or tired. His body disappears, his identity uh, disappears from his consciousness because he doesn't have enough attention, like none of us do, to really do well something that requires a lot of concentration and at the same time to feel that he exists. So existence temporarily suspended. Now, when that happens, he says, the music just flows out. And so many of the people describe this as a spontaneous flow that I call this um, type of experience the flow experience. Mihai found that flow, this experience of fully losing yourself in an activity, wasn't specific to musicians or artists. He saw it in chief executives, in assembly line workers in Detroit, Himalayan mountain climbers, Navajo shepherds, Olympic athletes. Whatever they did, if they found a way to experience flow in their lives, they seemed to be truly happy. The world is so full of things you can do (laughs) that you can try to do better, and if you can do that, it doesn't matter what you're doing. Mihai described one man he interviewed during his research who worked in New York City. Whose whole um, adult life consisted in slicing uh, salmon for lox and bagel in Delicatessen in New York and how... I mean, he describes how you take a fish, you know, a 30, 40 pound salmon, and you drop it on the counter one after the other until you develop a three dimensional x ray of how the fish is made inside by seeing how it ripples and how it sounds when it falls on the counter. And then takes these knives that he always sharpens and then starts cutting these fish so that he avoids. Um, the the bone structure uh, that would be in the way and makes the thinnest slices as fast as possible with the least effort possible. He developed this into an art form and he's very proud every night when he goes home he knows that he has filleted 
better than anybody else could do in the world. What would Abraham Maslow think of this? This idea that happiness can be found in ordinary moments where we lose ourselves in extraordinary ways? He didn't call it flow, but he had a different name for it. He called it peak experience. But this involves a renunciation of the the notion of the perfectibility of man. Man can be perfect, but for five minutes. <laughs> in a peak experience, in some great moment, uh, it's possible. But we just can't stay perfect. You must give up the notion of the permanent heaven. We can get into heaven, but for five minutes. Then you have to come back to the world again. Abraham Maslow speaking in 1966. You can see Mihai Csikszentmihalyi's entire talk on flow at TED.com. Hey, thanks for listening to our show on Maslow's Hierarchy of Human Needs this week. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Brent Bachman, Megan Kane, Eva Grant, Janae West, and Chris Benderev, with help from Daniel Shukin. Barton Girdwood is our intern. In the front office, Eric Newsom and Portia Robertson-Migas. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, June Cohen, Darren Triff, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Raymond James, a firm where financial advisors help you plan for every part of your life. No two lives are alike. That's why everyone deserves a financial plan as unique as they are. Backed by sophisticated resources and teams of specialists, a Raymond James financial advisor gets to know you, your passions, and everything that makes your life uniquely complex. Because what inspires your goals matters, whether that's charitable endeavors, mapping out the future of a business, or building a legacy for your family. Raymond James advisors use thoughtful planning and powerful tools to help people they serve embrace life and live it well. To learn more or connect with an advisor today, go to RaymondJames.com. Raymond James & Associates, Inc., member New York Stock Exchange, SIPAC. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capella University. Capella's programs teach skills relevant to your career so you can apply what you learn right away. See how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu. This message comes from Wondery. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose was it? Follow Blame It on the Fame on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts.